So I'm going to talk to you this morning about one of my favorite topics, namely uh, the reality of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, we know that we live at a time in the history of the church when there are lots of people who have somehow forgotten, lost sight of the fact that Jesus is truly here in the Blessed Sacrament, that he is truly here before us right now in this tabernacle. So I want to say a few words about how we know he's here um, and what that means for us. So about his reality and then kind of as an implication about the power of that for us um, in our lives. And um, here in the seminary, it's, it's, a, it's a joy to be with the seminarians here. I, I see them, they do beautiful genuflections. They manifest within them, in their bodies, the faith, the love they have for our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. So um, we're kind of reflecting on this in the midst of a group of guys who live this out too. So the real presence, we use this phrase about the Blessed Sacrament, the real presence, that he is really present. That in the Eucharist, it isn't just a sign, that it's him. That if the Eucharist was a sign, it wouldn't have any power for us. You know, signs are nice things, but they're not the same as something that's really there. A sign of food can't feed you. A sign of a drink can't quench your thirst. You need him to really be there if he's going to really have power for you. So how do we know he's really here? Well, I could give you a talk this morning um, kind of on doctrine. I could talk about church documents. I could talk from the catechism. Um, and all that's true and good. It usually doesn't make for a very interesting talk. Uh, I thought I'd instead look at this topic by looking at some of the miracles in the history of the Church about the Eucharist. The miracles, what are called the Eucharistic miracles, are in a sense God himself directly intervening and saying, hey, you forgot this, let me show you. Um, so I'm going to talk about what, what are called Eucharistic miracles. And one of the things we can draw from this is a realization that if we live in a period of the church's history when lots of people have forgotten about the Eucharist, lots of people doubt, well, this isn't the first time this has happened in the history of the church. And in fact, there was a period of the church's history, the 8th, 9th and 10th century, uh, in Italy in particular, where there was quite widespread disbelief and doubt about the reality of our Lord's presence in the Eucharist. And in that context, what did the Lord do to call his people back? Well, one of the things he did is he worked these miracles to show people. So there's a typical pattern in these miracles. There'd usually be a priest, a priest who doubted what he was doing, a priest who had kind of got to that stage of just kind of going through the motions. He wasn't really believing what he was doing. And then God intervenes and shows him in the Eucharist some sign that it is actually real. And sadly, that is a reminder, a humbling thing for me as a priest, that a priest can doubt, a priest can 
fail to believe what his whole life is based upon. But these priests, God himself intervened. So a couple examples of that. So one of them, um, there's a place called Cassia in Italy, not far from Rome. Um, and I've been there, I've seen this miracle still on display there today. And this miracle occurred in the year 1330. And this particular priest, he had doubts. He didn't really believe in the real presence. And in his behavior, that doubt was manifested in particular in his irreverence. So there was a day when he was called to take Holy Communion to someone who was sick at home. And he took a host from the tabernacle and he tossed it into the pages of his breviary, closed the breviary, and off he went. And I hope you realize that's a bad thing to do. Uh, you know, the, today we have lots of extraordinary Eucharistic ministers and sadly sometimes with that being so common that can go with People sometimes not well trained, um, not very clear in what they believe, um, not holding the picks that they're carrying the Blessed Sacrament in, in a reverent manner, maybe still listening to the radio while they're driving along with it, or just chatting to people while they're holding it. Well, that's in effect how this priest was behaving. So this priest had just he didn't have a pyx. He didn't have a, a corporal, the special cloth um, that the priest unfolds, that he puts the pyx on. Just had tossed the Eucharist, the host, into the pages of his breviary, closed his breviary, and off he went. And when he got to the sick person's bedside and he opened his breviary, to his surprise, his shock, the host had gone and instead there was a circle on both pages where the host had been where the host had turned into blood and soaked into those pages and those pages are now on display I've seen them you can go see them at this in Cassia in Rome uh, no, in Cassia outside of Rome um, yeah and you might say well that's that's a miracle. But in a sense, the most direct miracle was the change in behavior of the priest. He was the one who saw this. He was the one his parishioners saw went from being an irreverent priest to suddenly being a priest saying, hey, everybody, look at this. Hey, everybody. You know, they'd have seen the change in him. That would have been the real sign to the people that something had happened. But we today, we can go, we can see these pages still where the host had changed into blood and soaked into the pages. So one of many examples of what are called Eucharistic miracles. Another example, uh, Lanciano in Rome. Um, now this is well to the south of Rome, um, near the east coast. I was privileged to go there as well. This miracle occurred in the 8th century, and again, same pattern, a priest who doubted the reality of our Lord's presence in the Eucharist. A priest who was going through the motions, who was saying Mass, but didn't believe it anymore. Now for him, he was saying Mass at the altar, 
went through the consecration at the Eucharistic prayer. And after he'd finished the twofold consecration, you know, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, before his very eyes, he saw the host and he saw the contents of the chalice change. And the host turned into a circle of flesh. And the contents of the chalice coagulated and turned into um, five large clots of blood. And all of that is right now on display in Lanciano. You can go and you can see it on display and venerate it. And scientific tests in the 20th century have been done on the circle of flesh and on these clots of blood. They've shown that they are human flesh and human blood, type AB. They show that the muscle and the uh, nerve tissue in that flesh is that of a human heart. And that's interesting because if you were producing a, a fake, a fraud in the 8th century, you'd have no way of knowing that in the 20th century, people would come along who'd be able to scientifically test where you would got it from. They wouldn't have got it. It would have been very difficult to get it from a human heart. They'd have taken a pig or something. Um, but again, the real sign for his parishioners that something had happened would have been the change in the behavior of the priest. So we can go there today and we can see those miracles still there today. And those are pretty amazing to, to, to see the pages where the host changed into a circle of blood and you can still see that blood stain in the pages, to go to Lanciano to see the circle of flesh um, on display, to see in a special glass container these blood clots that are you know, quite large and substantial. But miraculous, incredible that those are, they're only signs. That Jesus before us in the tabernacle Jesus who comes to us in Holy Communion is even more present than he is there. At most, those would be a bit of Jesus, a bit of his flesh, a bit of his blood. Um, and in the Mass, the priest doesn't say, this is a part of my body, this is a part of my blood. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. So that all of Jesus becomes present all of his body, all of his blood. When you receive the Lord in Holy Communion, you don't receive a bit of him, all of him comes to you. That when our Lord, 2,000 years ago, when he walked on the earth in you know, a normal human body, his normal body behaved like a normal body. When it was cut, it bled. If you had cut off a bit of him, it would have been separate from the rest. And it was that very normal body that experienced pain and suffered and bled and died on the cross. But his risen body is different. His risen body is no longer capable of suffering pain. His risen body is no longer capable of bleeding, of being dismembered, of being separated one from one bit from another. So 
in his risen body, when his body is present, he's all present, not a bit of him here and a bit of him there. I know that's making a technical point, but it matters because it means in Holy Communion, all of him is coming to you. So if you take my hand right here now, um, if you, you know, there is both blood and flesh in that hand. They're there together because it's a living hand. A living body, blood and flesh are together. A dead body is what you have if blood and flesh are separated. And so the mass is a sign of sacrifice because there is a twofold sign of the body and the blood. But the reality is more than the sign, it's truly him. So he's fully present in the host, he's fully present in the chalice. That's why in most of the world in kind of post-COVID, um, we only receive communion in the one form, in the host, but you get all of him there. There is an added sign value, the sign value of sacrifice of death, because death is what you have when body and blood are separated. There is an added sign in receiving the chalice as well, but there's no added reality. You don't get more Jesus by getting two hosts or more Jesus by getting the chalice and the host. You don't get more grace. Um, he's all there and he all comes to you in Holy Communion. Back to those Eucharistic miracles, said at Lanciano, that you can go and you can see this circle of human flesh. Well, that means that is not actually the flesh of the Lord Jesus, because that's a piece of dead flesh, and it's a bit of flesh. Whereas in Holy Communion, although it looks like bread and tastes like bread, what he says it is, is it's him. And if it's him, it's all of him coming to you. He said it 2,000 years ago at the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood. The church down through the centuries has taught that and said this, he meant what he said. And these miracles are examples of him coming from heaven and saying, you forgot this, let me remind you, it's really me. Okay, that's kind of the bigger part of my talk, um, the reality of his presence. He is truly here before us. How do we know? His church has always taught this. How do we know his saints have lived this out? How do we know he has shown us by the miracles he has repeatedly worked? We might add in our context in the 20th, well, most of you and me, we remember the 20th century here. Yeah. Um, we were blessed with some amazing popes uh, who one of the ways God in the last century, even amidst confusion in the church about is the Lord here in the Eucharist, some amazing popes who have taught us very beautifully, John Paul II's encyclicals on Holy Communion, Paul VI's encyclical on uh, the Eucharist. We've had some beautiful teachings. This, in our day, how is the Lord reminding us, yes, I am present here. 
teachings of the popes. But also the last century, um, the various visions of Our Lady. Um, I'm going to guess some of you follow some unapproved ones or ones that aren't yet approved, because you know, there's always a phase before they're approved when they're not yet approved. Um, but whether you look to Fatima, whether you look to Lourdes, or more recent alleged, shall we say, ones at Medjugorje and elsewhere, um, again and again, Our Lady has come and she, among her teachings about the Eucharist, at Fatima, the angel appeared, showed the children um, a host, told them the importance of making adoration. In our day too, the Lord is reminding us with miracles. He's here, he's present. We need to remember. How do we apply that to ourselves? So the title of the talk I've given you for this morning is the, real the Eucharist Reality and Power. So I've talked about the reality. What about the power? What difference does it make? So I'm going to quote a couple examples from two saints, St. Therese of Lisieux and St. Bernadette of Lourdes, uh, the saint that Our Lady appeared to at Lourdes. Um, so St. Therese of Lisieux, probably the, the greatest saint of the 20th century, that's what uh, Pius X called her, probably the most well-known saint of the 20th century, probably the most loved saint of the 20th century. Probably all know her as the little flower, the one who taught the little way. How do we come to the Lord? We've got to be little, like little children, trusting our, our Father. But you might not know how some of the biggest moments in her life revolved around receiving Holy Communion. So how, does the, how is the Eucharist power? Well, the lives of the saints show us her life in particular, we can see key moments, the changes that happened in her, she describes how I was receiving communion. Um, so she talks about her first Holy Communion. Um, she talks about the tears of joy that she shed in receiving communion. Said how it was the joy of heaven that she was experiencing. Ah, how sweet was that first kiss of Jesus. It was a kiss of love. I felt that I was loved. And I said, I love you, and I give myself to you forever. On that day, joy filled my heart. So that's from her story of her soul, her autobiography. You might know she talks, one of the defining things of her spirituality was her sense of her vocation to suffer. Um, she died of tuberculosis, died in her mid-twenties. Um, she didn't need to die. She died because the doctors misdiagnosed her, which meant they gave her all the wrong treatments, which meant her tuberculosis was not just something that killed her, but that she suffered from much more painfully than she needed to if the doctors had properly diagnosed and properly treated her. She talks about how um, at night um, she coughed into a handkerchief uh, and she coughed blood. And she described that as the kiss of Jesus. 
that Jesus was calling her, that she sensed in that that she, she was going to be dying, that the Lord was calling her, that she had a vocation to suffer, a vocation to offer sacrifice for others. Uh, so in her autobiography, she writes about this. What, you know, did she have this vocation to love? She talks about that she sensed she was to be the, everybody needs a heart. She says she sensed that she was to be the, the heart of the church, the, the pulsing love of the church, uh, pulsing that love out to the whole body. But through that in prayer, in her sacrifice of suffering, when did she know she was called to suffer? When did she realize that she was called to make this, this as her vocation? After her second Holy Communion. So two weeks after she received her first Holy Communion, if you remember back then it was much rarer to receive Holy Communion, so she's writing about it and there's a much clearer sense for her of a connection of specific graces that she received with those acts of receiving Holy Communion. But she attributes that second Holy Communion two weeks later to being the moment when she realized she had this vocation to suffer. So again for ourselves that means receiving Communion should be a powerful thing. And then a particular moment we might also point to in her life that a change she attributes to Holy Communion um, was a change when she was a child. So before she became a nun, before she went into the convent, she describes how as a little girl she was, she was very spoilt and she behaved as a spoilt little girl. Um, her mother had died when she was very young. She was left emotionally very delicate, um, very fragile, cried easily. Um, among the things that she was overly childish, not just childlike, but childish about, was the family's Christmas ritual. And she describes how um, one Christmas, um, she overheard, and she was, um, she overheard her father saying to the other, uh, her sisters, um, well, this will be the last time we go through this childish ritual of St. Therese, or Therese, coming down, um, opening the presents like a little girl, not kind of like a grown-up. And Therese heard her father say this, and this delicate little girl um, could have burst into tears, could have been utterly distraught. But she sensed what she calls a grace of what she called a complete conversion, that she attributes to her having received communion at the midnight mass just before. So what transformation occurred in her that enabled her to not be this spoilt little girl crying because her father's saying we're not going to have um, the, the, the children's Christmas ritual anymore. 
she received this grace of complete conversion in receiving Holy Communion at that midnight mass. So those are three examples in her of changes that come with her receiving Holy Communion. I want to say a word about how the Lord comes to you, how he adapts himself to you. So those are three particular changes in St. Therese. There was something in her that she needed to receive and it was in Holy Communion receiving Jesus that she received this particular thing. And this is an example of how for each of us, when the Lord comes to you in Holy Communion, he doesn't come to you as just some thing. He comes with particular graces for you today. He knows today what you need right now, and he comes adapted to your need. So in the Old Testament, when um, they write about the manna, they talk about how the, even the manna was adapted to the need of every recipient. That it wasn't, in a sense, just the same for everyone. Each person had their own spiritual needs adapted for each recipient. Even according to its taste, it says in the Book of Wisdom. For us, it's even more true. When the Lord comes to you in Holy Communion, he comes adapted to your need. So with St. Therese, those three examples, the Lord knew what she needed. He came in Holy Communion. He came adapted for her need. He came with a particular grace. So we need to know that's how he comes to us, adapted for our every need. It also means when we come to him, when we look to him, we need to be asking, Lord, you know what I need right now. Come to me with what I need. Ask him, beg him, pray to him. Be adapted for my needs. Help me see my needs. Help me be disposed and open and ready for the graces you're offering me in Holy Communion adapted for my every need. So Bernadette of Lourdes, um, she, when she was talking to the other nuns, told them how they need, when they receive Holy Communion, you need to receive him well. She made the example of, um, you know, when you go to, ho to a um, hotel, um, and you want to stay in the hotel, stay in a room there, you have to pay rent. Well, the Lord Jesus wants to come and stay in the hotel of our hearts. And if we receive him well, he owes us rent. Uh, so he's going to come and pay us with the graces he wants to give. Um, now obviously, he doesn't really owe us anything, but um, she just makes that as a beautiful little image. If we receive him well, he will give us. He will pay us rent for what we need. Okay, my last point to you today, in terms of receiving Holy Communion and its power, is about the, how the power it can have for other people. 
So I gave the example there with St. Therese of the power came in, coming to her, adapted for her needs. But when we receive Holy Communion, it's also a powerful prayer for other people. So St. Therese, when she would receive Communion, she would offer that up for particular intentions. And she writes in her autobiography, The Story of a Soul, about how there was one particular person she was wanting to be converted. And she was praying um, for a priest, um, Hyacinth Loison, an apostate priest. So in her t period of history in France in particular, um, France very polarized, um, many people turning from the church, there's this particular figure of uh, Hyacinth Loison, who was an apostate priest. He'd abandoned his priesthood, um, done terrible things, and he was in fact uh, on trial. He was going to be executed, put to death. And she prayed to the Lord, wanting him to have the grace of conversion, of dying a good death, even in execution. And she asked the Lord that she be given some sign of this. Um, you know, St. Therese, she talks about she's, she was very pushy with God, um, <laughs> telling him what she wanted um, and asking him for signs. But in the context of a heart in love with the Lord, um, say, you know, a little child knows he can trust his father. Um, and she did. She asked for things. So she made her communion asking for the conversion of Hyacin Loison. And as he died, he grabbed a crucifix and kissed it. Um, and she said she took this as a sign um, that he who had rejected the church, rejected the Lord, rejected the crucifix, and for so long had refused even to allow a priest to come near him, died asking for a crucifix and kissing it. And I give that as an example of which she does, as a, of the power of when we receive communion, that being a powerful prayer for other people. So yes, adapted for our needs, coming to us with what we need, but it should be a prayer we offer for others. So there's kind of a, a common mistake even among devout souls in the church where we'll talk so much about the priest offering the Mass that we forget that you also have a sense in which you are united and you are offering and you should each come with a particular intention that you are bringing to the Mass, you are laying on the altar. That when the priest has the pattern and he um, offers it in the offer offertory prayer, you should have your intention visually, uh, spiritually laid upon that pattern too. So. In the Mass, we talk, you know, in most parish bulletins, newsletters, we'll list the intentions of the week. Um, that's actually the priest's particular intention uh, that he offers. So a priest has a ministerial intention that he offers the Mass for. So the, every Mass is offered for the universal church, for everybody. Every Mass is also offered for the living and the dead. You know, every Eucharistic prayer we pray for the Pope, the Bishop, and the living, the dead. 
But the priest also has a particular intention, ministerial intention. But you, you have an intention too. And it's important that you don't forget that, don't forget the, the power of that. So St. Therese's example is just one example of a visible fruit that she says, this happened because of my offering my communion in the Mass for that intention. So that's not already, in a sense, a regular practice. Every Mass, come to Mass with an intention. I'm offering my presence in this Mass. I'm offering my reception of communion at this Mass. What's my intention today? Okay, in conclusion, summary, what have I said? This is a talk about the Eucharist, reality and power. So reality, we live in a time when many people have forgotten he's here, many people doubt. Um, it's not the first time in the history of the church people have doubted. These Eucharistic miracles that I talked about, one very powerful uh, demonstration. What does God say on the matter? He works these miracles. I am here. These priests who doubt, showing them, it's me. But although those miracles are visual signs, his reality here, right now in the tabernacle, is even more. He's here. And in Holy Communion, he comes to you. And he comes to you with power. Adapted for our every need. He knows what you need. Ask him for what you need. Ask to be open to the graces he's offering to you in every communion. But also empower for others. Bring your intention united to the sacrifice of the Mass. Each of you has a particular intention. That is your role in the, the priesthood of all believers. Don't, don't miss out on that. So, the Eucharist, reality and power.